Bible and you're following along with us, I want you to open to February 24th. If you have a regular Bible, then open to Leviticus chapters 21 and 22. I'm curious how many people are keeping up with the reading. Ah, some are falling behind. There's still time to catch up. This is week number nine. We have uh, 52 total weeks to go. and We'll be through the Bible. You know, very, very important. I want to talk with you this morning. We're going to continue studying some of the laws, the ceremonial and religious laws of Israel and look for applications to our own life and experience and our own faith. As you read through these sections, some of you may be tempted as you're reading through to say, this is boring. This is hard reading. Anybody experience that a little bit? A couple of people, okay. Well, let me speak to those of you that found it, have found it difficult slugging through the laws. When you read these passages, one gal said to me Friday after the service, she came up and she said, you know what? She says, I'm so excited about reading through the Bible in a year and studying through the Bible in a year. This is wonderful. And she says, I always try to read through, and I always, when I start in Genesis, I read through Genesis, I get into Exodus, and then I skip Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and I get right to Joshua. <laughs> I said, you're missing the best part. You're missing the best part. And, and what I explained to her, and what I wanted to share with you, is that when you reach these, these, these sections that if just on surface reading, seem, they seem to be so boring and so laborious and uh, tedious, if you will, that you, that you really take time to meditate on those passages and say, Lord, what are the, what's the principle behind these laws? How can I draw out, discover the principle, draw it out and be able to apply it to my life? Because these are all applicable to our lives in principle form. So you've got to understand, what's the spirit of the law that's behind the letter of the law? That's what you want to study so that you find uh, that the entire law does apply in very significant ways if you understand the spirit or the principle of the law. So when you read them, when you study them, do so prayerfully and meditate on those, on those scriptures. Read them over and over and over. Uh, it was as late as Friday evening and I was in my office just prior to the Friday night service and I was reading over the section regarding the priests again. We'll talk about it this morning a little bit. And... Uh, God was still showing me uh, things about the priesthood and about the regulations regarding the priests that were applicable to us. And it was just marvelous. So you just, you just keep reading them and reading them, meditating on them. And God's Spirit will actually illuminate your thinking and give you understanding that just absolutely will blow you away. Wonderful. So I want to encourage you along those lines. Now remember, as we talked last week, we, we did part one of the ceremonial religious laws. The three purposes that the laws were designed for uh, from the ancient Israelite perspective. One was to teach the Israelites to honor and respect God as they would keep his laws, as they would read and study and meditate on his laws because his laws are reflective of his nature and his character. When people today, they observe law or the rule of law or they do what's right, but if they don't have a basis for doing it, other than say, well, it's right, we should do it. Why should we do it? Why is it right? 
Why is it right not to murder? Why is it right not to commit adultery? Why is it right to not steal? Why is it right to honor your father and mother? Because these things are reflective of God's nature and God's care. This is God's law. And people who, who don't profess a, a belief in God, the God of the universe, the creator God, they have no basis for obeying these laws. They'll agree that they should be obeyed. They'll agree that they're right. But you say to them, why are they right? Why should we obey them? Because they're God's law. And they're reflective of his character. And this is the very, very important issue that God wanted Israel to understand and grasp so through his law given to them, they would learn to honor and respect him. Isn't that what God wants from us? Sure. Secondly, the laws were designed to lead Israel, lead God's people in holiness and an understanding, a grasping of their separateness as a people who brought, were brought into existence by him, by his creative might, to live in such a manner as that they would be a light to all the rest of the nations. The same thing is true for us. Not only are we to, to see that his laws are reflective of his character and nature, and thereby honor and respect him, and say, you are a wonder of a counselor. You are incredible. You've created all this, and this is how it works, and you've given us the design. Oh, wow, Lord. But even more than that, that we begin to walk in holiness because the laws really stir up, uh, uh, and, and there's an impetus towards holiness. Holiness doesn't mean just being pious, just looking good, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Holiness means that you recognize what, what really is evil, what really is destructive, and what really is good and holy and righteous. And that you're set apart from that which is destructive, set apart to that which is constructive, healthy. And so the laws were designed to give the people that sense of perspective also and lead them in holiness. In fact, Paul writes about the laws in Galatians, and he says that the laws of God, the, the, the Mosaic law, was schoolmaster to lead the people in righteousness and to Christ. And also to give us a sense of our separateness. We are a distinctly different people. Christians are different. Christians ought to be radically different. That we have a, a whole different basis for living, a whole different view of life. And, and all, every single one of us that have come out of the world and become Christians, truly filled with the Holy Spirit, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Before you were a Christian, you had one narrow perspective of life. And you thought, of course, you had a, a good, healthy, unbiased perspective. But then you become a Christian, and your perspective all of a sudden is tremendously expanded. And you see how radically different things are from where you used to, used to look at them. And then you begin to see that you're different. And then you hear the call uh, over and over and over to live out this difference. And that you see when you do live it out in the context of your neighborhoods, your workplaces, your family settings, that people initially begin to look at you as strange. You see, Pat Sifani, who's, who's running for the school board, was attacked last week by some people at one of the school board, one of the meetings, one of the forums, where all the candidates could get met and talk to and so forth. And, and someone came up to her afterward and said, speaking to her in terms of you're a Christian, all Christians, you are dangerous people. See, this person meant it in an insulting way. 
But in reality, if this person understood who we are and what God wants to do through us and in, in enhancing the culture, that person would come back and say, thank you for being, built, being willing to be involved. But it's only after a while, if let's say Pat gets elected and she's involved and she's, she's growing in the process, she's bringing a, a healthy, godly, wise perspective, God's wisdom poured through her life, God's love poured through her life into that setting, then people are going to come along and they're going to they're see that, yes, she is different, but she's a blessing because she's different. I had lunch with Brad Parton, the mayor of Redondo, this last week, and, and I was talking to him about his experience as being mayor, Christian man, strong evangelical Christian, loves the Lord. Tremendous attacks on him because he was a Christian. Tremendous media bias against him. But you know what? You know what's happened? All those people have interacted with him now, who were his enemies initially, now support him. They're in his camp. He's won them over. Why? Because he's a faithful, godly man living out the reality of his faith. And he's unashamed about it. Unabashed. So this idea of the law leading people in a sense of holiness and, and their identity as a separate, distinct people, the principle is also applicable to you and I in our daily experience. And people will respond to us. First of all, they'll react we have to expect their reaction, but we can't be intimidated by the reactions of people who are operating from a point of fear and, and, and ignorance. We have to be consistent. We have to keep moving, keep moving in a positive, mature direction. And when we goof up, we admit we goof up, we don't make alibis, right? And then we, as, you, as, you, as people see this in our life, they're going to be won over. They're going to say yes. And you're going to have a positive influence and testimony in their life and very possibly lead those people to Jesus. And they'll get to inherit the kingdom also. Isn't that a glorious thought? Amen. And thirdly, the, the laws were designed to give the people a sense of respect for their neighbors. And Israel, of course, God wanting them to be a light they were to communicate respect for their neighbors. Why? Because their neighbors were also made in the image of God. Uh, God tells Israel, he says, I'm not giving you the land because you're so much better. I'm giving you the land only because the iniquity of the Amorite is full now. The wickedness of the Canaanites is full. And they have disqualified themselves. And God was going to punish them. But notwithstanding that, God loves every sinner. And he wants us to love sinners, hate sin, but love the sinner, and be agents of reconciliation and healing in their life. You won't do that unless you have God's perspective, and God's law leads you and gives you that perspective towards your neighbor. Okay? So those are three broad parameters or, or, or reasons that the law was designed for. Now, if you go into the New Testament, Paul speaks much more specifically about the law. The law was given to show us our sin to show us how far we fall short of God's standard and thereby uh, encompasses these, these three reasons also. But as we continue with the discussion of the ceremonial laws, I want to pick it up where we left off and I want to talk with you a little bit about the priests. Now, if the people of Israel were to be holy, then the priests were to be all that much more holy. 
They were the ones who were going to be offering the sacrifice. They were the representatives, if you will, of the people before God. And uh, in some areas of the Christian church today, uh, we've adopted this Old Testament priesthood model uh, as the priest being representative uh, of the people to God. Uh, that is not a biblical model for the church. That is not a biblical model for the church. The biblical model says that every true, born-again Christian is a priest to God. So you are priests. And so this section on the priesthood is going to have significant application to you in your life. And we'll just look at some general principles, and I'll leave it up to you to fill out the, uh, the particulars uh, in your own situation. And you can certainly do this in many churches. You discuss your priesthood. But if the people were to be holy, how much more than the priests? Now, if you think back with me to the tabernacle, you remember the tabernacle uh, was divided into three portions. There was the outer court. That's where the people could come in and bring their sacrifice and so forth. Then there was the inner court, the holy place. That was behind the first veil. And then there was the, the holy of holies. That was the most inner court. That was where only the high priest could enter and enter one time a year, the Day of Atonement. So the, the, the tabernacle was divided into three sections. That was the place of worship for Israel. The nation of Israel was divided, likewise, threefold. There was the general congregation of the people, and then there were the priests. See, the priests could go into the holy place. And then there was the high priest, and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. So you have this threefold um, division of not only the, the uh, tabernacle, but also the nation. And the setting aside, the setting off of the priests for very specific uh, tasks and uh, worship of the Lord. Now when we deal with the priests in this section, in Leviticus chapter 21 and 22, this section is broken down likewise into three areas. And these three areas have to do with uh, what the priest must not do, what the priest must not be, and what the priest must not offer. So there's three areas that govern, three areas of regulations that govern uh, the activity of the priest. Above all, the priest must be separated from all that would defile them because their becoming defiled would defile the tabernacle, the very place of worship and sacrifice. So that has significant meaning for us. Let's look at these three major sections. And it begins in chapter 21. The first 15 verses speaks to us about prohibited persons. That major section talks about prohibited persons, and that concerns the priest's social relationships. There were certain people that the priests were not to be involved in intimate personal relationship with because that would lead to their defiling and hence their disqualification for offering sacrifice and for eating in the tabernacle the things of the tabernacle. So there were certain relationships, and if you've read the passage, you know about those. I just want to point out generally to you that there are uh, relationships that the priest was not allowed to participate in because they would defile him. Now, the same thing is true for us. There are relationships that we ought not to be involved in in an intimate manner because they would lead to our defiling. They would be stumbling blocks to us. You don't hang out with prostitutes, drug dealers, in order to participate with them in their lifestyle. 
If you're going to hang out with those people, you do so, but you keep yourself separate in order to lead them to Jesus. You know, as well as I do, when you, when you spend too much time in these kinds of relationships that are non-Christian relationships, how easy it is to be led off, how easy it is to be distracted. We understand peer pressure. We understand what it is to, uh, if you have trouble with, with uh, drinking or drugs and things like that out of your past, and there's still remnants of that hanging on. You don't go hang out with people in the bars. And you don't even do it under the guise of saying, well, I'm going to lead someone to Christ. And by the way, I'll have a few beers along with it. Those are the kinds of relationships that only would serve to stumble you and thereby disqualify you. Now, by disqualification, I don't mean that you lose God's favor. What I'm saying is that you find yourself dead in the water in terms of your relationship with Him from your point of view, and also uh, you disqualify yourself from any kind of real viable ministry. You're not able to minister in truth, in effectiveness, you're not be able to minister in the power of the Spirit if you have sinned, if you have gone astray because of these relationships. So we, asked, we also, as the priests of the Old Testament, must guard uh, our relationships and observe very, very clearly who we're going to be involved with. Secondly, uh, from verse 16 through chapter 22, verse 16, this deals with prohibited practices prohibited practices. There were certain practices that the priest was not allowed to participate in, and again, uh, so also us. There are certain things that we are not to involve ourselves in in terms of practices. And again, we won't go into great detail about that. You can fill that out for yourself. Thirdly, in uh, chapter 22, verses 17 through 33, there are certain prohibited sacrifices. There were certain kinds of sacrifices the priests were prohibited from offering. They just couldn't offer any old thing. God had very strict requirements for the sacrifices that he wanted the people to, be, to offer and the priests to offer on behalf of the people. Now, what sacrifice are we to offer? What's the, what's the great sacrifice we offer? Praise. What else? Our bodies is a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. Paul says, when you understand God's mercy towards you, when you have his mercy towards you in view, your only response is not only to praise him. He says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, now to offer your body, as opposed to the body of an animal on an altar, and a dead animal at that, he says, I, I urge you, offer your body, the sum and substance of everything that you are, your entire life, as a living sacrifice to him. Holy and pleasing. And so the, the, the greatest sacrifice that we can offer is our entire life. Now what does that mean? That means where you work, your home, private time, when you're all alone, recreational time, leisure time, Every life arena that God deserves the best. If you remember the burnt offering last week, the first of all the five offerings, the burnt offering was the entire animal on the altar. The whole offering was burnt up to the Lord. We said that was symbolic of total devotion, total worship. Paul in chapter 12 of Romans is speaking about total devotion. Offer your entire life to him. Not just this part, not just over here. 
But wherever you are, in whatever arena, train yourself. Have this perspective about your life. God, even in my eating and drinking, I want to do it as unto you. Lord, I want to learn to love my wife as unto you. I want to learn to love my husband as unto you. I want to learn to train up my kids as unto you. That doesn't mean you have to be rigid. It just means that you understand the spirit of these things and you are given to the Lord. And because you're given to the Lord, then your life flows in his direction. And every interaction, every involvement, every element of your life then begins to come under his lordship and you begin to do them to bring him glory, bring him honor. If you're a student, God, God, I want to take this test unto you. I want to study as unto you. I want to get an A for your glory. Does that make sense to you? And so, so we see this idea of sacrifice. God wants us to, to, to just pour our life out in sacrifice for him. Because he's already, what, poured his life out for us. Jesus says in another place, quoting the Old Testament, quoting God's words, that these people praise me with their lips only. What's he saying? He says, I don't even have their heart. They're just going through the motions. It's just lip service. We can't afford to, to just give God lip service. The sacrifices we offer are spiritual, holy sacrifices with our, with our whole life. In every life arena, ask yourself that question. You, you, get, you sit down and you write down all the life arenas you're involved in. Lord, Lord, am I honoring you with this life arena? Am I living my life as a sacrifice to you here? Are you pleased with how I'm living my life in this place? You just have to ask yourself those questions. Because you're a priest of God. Turn to 1 Peter with me. 1 Peter, if you have a daily Bible, it's December 21st. Page 1633. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4, Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone, referring to Jesus, who was rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, now look at what he says, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our high priest. We are the priests unto God. We are in a very real sense, because we are the priesthood, very real sense, the intercessors for the rest of the world. Just like the priesthood in Israel were the intercessors for the nation of Israel. Do you see that? Do you see the parallel? We have a tremendous impact and a tremendous opportunity to impact the world just for our prayers, our interaction, uh, how we live our lives, and so forth. So he says, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Drop down to verse uh, 9 and 10. Again, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now, why all those? that you may declare the praises of him who called you 
out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Peter is just picking up the imagery from the Old Testament. All of Moses' words, God's words through Moses to Israel, when he says, I'm the God who brought you out up out of Egypt. I'm the God who saved you from slavery and brought you into this promised land, into this good land, into this place that you did not uh, uh, prepare for yourselves, but I prepared for you. He picks up that imagery and he applies it right to the church. He says, you're a holy nation, a, a, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. God who brought you up out of the darkness, into the light. Once you were not a people. The same thing was true for Israel. There was a time, a period in time, when Israel was not a people. God created Israel. God brought them into existence for his own purpose and for his glory. And the same thing with you and I as the church. We were not a people in respect, in terms of, of being a born-again people. We are, we've been recreated. God has called us into existence as a brand new creation, a brand new society within this society. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are. Now you are a people. And once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now look at the conclusions. In verses 11 and 12, he says, I urge you now as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That people may see our labor. And though they accuse us of having untoward motives, though they accuse us of being evil and or wrong or dangerous, but as we persevere, because we understand the calling as priests to minister in this society, to minister in this culture, we have a tremendous responsibility. Then when the, on the day when God visits, on the day when the Lord comes, that all the people who have profaned would say, Oh, I see! Hallelujah! Thank you for these people! God's going to turn them around. They'll give him glory. But see, we play a very significant role. You've got to understand that you are a priest. And there are certain regulations, certain things that affect your life and, and as a consequence affect the culture and the society in which you are involved and immersed. Being a priest. Have you viewed yourself as that? A priest? A priest to God? An intercessor for the culture? an interface between the world and the Lord to make a difference, to offer sacrifice. If you haven't seen yourself that way, please do. Now, with respect to the priesthood, it's important to, to understand, along these lines we've been discussing, that all of Aaron's sons, remember Aaron was the high priest, he was Moses' brother, and he was assigned the role as the high priest. He was anointed to be the high priest. And all of his descendants, all of his sons then, would, would be the Aaronic priesthood, would represent the nation uh, to the Lord, and one of those sons, once a year, would be appointed the high priest. Well, all of Aaron's sons, whether they were young or old, whether they were whole or somehow suffered some kind of physical uh, uh, limitation or deformity, regardless of those things, all of them were priests. 
Now, an interesting distinction here, they were such just by virtue of their birth and being sons to Aaron. Nothing could change their status. But, but those who were physically deformed, those who suffered some kind of physical problem, were not allowed to officiate in the tabernacle. They were not allowed to officiate in the temple or even enter the holy place. Those who were defiled ceremonially by touching a dead body or being involved in some way that violates the regulations for priests, they were uh, not in any way allowed to participate in the services of the tabernacle. Now this has tremendous consequences for us. You and I, as we said, are believers, but as believers we are priests to God. Now we're priests to God by virtue of our life-giving union with Jesus Christ. Just as Aaron's sons, by being sons to Aaron, were priests. Nothing could change that status. Nothing can change our status as priests. We are priests. But just like there were things that could disqualify Aaron's sons from actually participating in the, in the worship, in the sacrifices, in the ministry, and in the intimate relationship with God, there are things that can disqualify us from fulfilling our priestly prerogatives. And those things, again, are those that which defile us. Behaviors, practices, certain relationships, uh, attitudes towards sacrifice, and so forth. So we can become defiled. That doesn't make us any less a priest. That doesn't remove our priesthood. All that says is that now we can't function in that priesthood. We're, we're immobilized. Have you ever in, been involved in sin in such a way that you found yourself backing away from fellowship? Not coming to church because you're ashamed or embarrassed? Not finding yourself able to speak to others about Jesus with conviction because your own life is in the toilet? You have, in effect, what? Disqualified yourself from being able to enter into the tabernacle and truly experiencing worship and fellowship with God and then removing yourself from a place of vital ministry. You see that? It doesn't make you any less a priest. It just affects your ability to function as such. And so it's important as we study the laws, the regulations that govern the priesthood in Israel, that we see how they affect us also. Union with Christ is one thing, but communion with him is something else. Unity with Christ is one thing, but fellowship with him is something entirely different. Life, having eternal life is one thing, but having vital, significant ministry is another thing. It's important for us to understand that. So I leave you with that in terms of this section, is to examine and check your own self out. Say, what things are acting as defilements in my life, inhibiting my relationship with him, in inhibiting my participation in the priestly ministry that God has given to me. Because if you're inhibited, there are certain aspects of ministry that are not happening that God wants to happen. It's important for us, just like the priest. And it's hard. It's hard. I mean, if you read those regulations regarding the priests in Israel, I mean, they had to live a very disciplined life, did they not? Because they could defile themselves very easily. It's up to you and I, as priests to our God, to also live disciplined lives. 
not slipshod, casual, sloppy lives, spiritually speaking. God has a tremendous opportunity for us. As we opened our service with prayer and we said, Lord, forgive us for our, the way we affect the world, or I should say the way we're not salting the world, making a difference. That has a direct bearing on our perspective, our understanding of ourselves as priests of God and how we function as such. I want you to look over to chapter 25 of Leviticus. And chapter 25 describes two periodic Sabbaths of rest for the land. The seven-year Sabbath and then the, 25th, or the 50th year of Jubilee. And I just want to say a few things about these. These Sabbaths were designed and given for a number of reasons. First of all, to acknowledge, or have the people acknowledge that God is the owner of the land. You see this in verse 23 of chapter 25. The land is owned by God. All things belong to God. The, the earth and all it contains, all the gold and the silver is his. The cattle in a thousand hills is his. And we are tenants, God says. He says to Israel, I own the land, it's mine, and I'm allowing you to be a tenant by virtue of our covenant relationship. So the very same principles hold true for us. Everything that we possess is really God's, and he's given it to us to be stewards over and to possess it in righteousness and wisdom. It would be good stewards, not wasteful, not thankless. Have appropriate perspective. Further on, uh, the, the uh, Sabbaths for the land actually has effect on the land. It's a wise measure for the land itself, as most agricultural scientists will agree today, it's a good thing to let the land rest every seven years because it has this built-in ability to regenerate. You don't exhaust the land. The idea of crop rotation uh, falls in there also. Fourthly, it provided also, the seventh year Sabbath provided also an opportunity uh, for a year of joyous relaxation and leisure for the people every seven years. Doesn't that sound great? That's where we get the idea of sabbatical, a sabbatical leave. Uh, teachers and other people uh, in, in positions of, of responsibility and so forth will be given a sabbatical, a year off, so that they can study, they can pursue other things, uh, they can relax, uh, no pressure from the day-to-day -day routine and so forth. And this was the idea uh, back in Israel that God would give the people every seventh year a year off just to rest. Isn't that a glorious thought? Should I could have a year off every seven years? And what was really fascinating, if you read the account, God's, God promised the people that they didn't have to worry because he would work wondrously in the land and the land would keep producing that next year so that there would be ample food, not only for they and their families, but for all their neighbors and everybody else in the land. And even the animals would have food that they didn't have to worry. And everybody could enjoy a year of relaxation and uh, rejoicing leisure, joyful leisure. Fifthly, these, uh, this regulations regarding the land served also as a check on greed and covetousness. They served as a check on greed and covetousness, and we'll look at that a little bit more later in reason number seven. Number six, they were also meant to develop the people's faith in the Lord 
and to cultivate a sense of trust, trustful dependence. 2.22. You see, when you took a year off and you're used to working hard and you're used to the crops coming in and you're absolutely dependent upon those crops and all of a sudden God says, all right, now, mandatory year off every seventh year. And you say, oh, whoa, wait a minute. If I don't work, nothing's going to come in. But God's already said, I'll provide for you. So it provided you an opportunity to once again trust God. Okay, Lord, I trust you. And uh, see, once again, God's faithfulness as you obeyed his command to take the Sabbath. I talked to a man this morning about just taking a Sabbath every week, a day of rest. He said, he said is that really real? I mean, do we do that as Christians? I said, absolutely. He, said, he began to think, and he says, do you know how that's going to affect my life? I said, yes, it's going to bless your life. And so also in Israel, the year of Sabbath was intended to bless them. But the most important reason, I think, of these regulations was to secure as far as possible a relatively equal distribution of the wealth. And it assured this by preventing excessive accumulation of capital and or land in the hands of just a few people, leaving the great mass of people in poverty. And you see this uh, in, in almost every culture and society, this great uh, uh, differentiation between these, the poor and the very, very wealthy. Yeah, you see it especially in a lot of third world countries, uh, this very, very unequal distribution. Now, we're not talking about communism. We're talking about communism, in a sense. We're talking about God's design so that everybody would have equal share. Now, if you were an Israelite, and especially with respect to the year of Jubilee, and you were to make some foolish decisions, you were to fall into debt and so forth, you had to sell yourself into slavery or sell your land, your family's land, your heritage, your inheritance, in order to support yourself and your family, uh, pay off your debts, then you had to, you look forward to the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, when you would be released as a slave, or your family would be released, or the land would be returned back to your family, even though you were to have died. So it kept everybody with this constant sense of protection and care for God, and there was equality for everybody within the context of uh, the nation. This is a significant feature. Now, the, on the face of it, this seems to fly directly in the face of what we know as our capitalist system. And uh, God means for us, this is very, very important, God means for us to try to make as much money as we can. Do you know that? God means for us to be as productive and as fruitful as we can possibly be. Now, the reason is why. Is it so that we can luxuriate and indulge ourselves in all the fruit of our labor and all the wealth? No. No. So that we can be better stewards and be wise stewards and um, govern wisely that which he entrusts to our care as a result of our labors, that we can bless others through it. Not that we amass a whole bunch and accumulate. You know the bumper sticker, he who, who dies with the most toys wins. Nothing. And he's accountable. He's going to stand before the throne of God and God's going to say, I gave all this to you. What did you do with it? What did you do with it? And you know and I know that it's human nature to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. We have a tendency towards selfishness, don't we? And so the year of Jubilee was given to Israel to prevent accumulation and the great disparity between classes, if you will, the poor and the rich. 
so that you wouldn't have covetousness, you wouldn't have greed, you wouldn't have people looking and, and have these tremendous class distinctions in God's nation. There's, there ought not to be class distinctions in the church. And if there are the very wealthy and the very poor, then the very wealthy ought to help the very poor. We see this in the primitive church in Acts chapter 2. Anyone who had anything sold it so that those who had need could come and that need be met. It's part of our offerings to help other people. Now the key to the seventh year Sabbath is the word rest. When you think of the seventh year Sabbath, here is the key word, rest. You find this in verse 4 of chapter 25. And the rest was to come in three ways. First of all, there was rest for the land. The land could rest for that year. Secondly, the people could rest from their manual labor. They could have a year of rest. And thirdly, there was rest from debt. There was rest from debt in that seventh year, in that Sabbath year. Now the key to the year of Jubilee is the word liberty. Whereas the key to, to the Sabbath was rest, now the key to the year of Jubilee is the word liberty. And this is found in verse 10. And again, it comes in three ways. It comes, first of all, liberty to the slave. Secondly, liberty to property. Property was liberated. The slave was liberated. And thirdly, there was liberty to the ground itself because there were two successive years of rest for the ground. There was a Sabbath, the seventh year, and then the eighth year would be the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. Now both of these Sabbaths were to begin on the Day of Atonement. Now the Day of Atonement, remember from last week, was the, was the, the tenth day of the, of the uh, uh, seventh month, the Sabbath month. That was the Day of Atonement. What happened on the Day of Atonement? That was the day the high priest laid his hands on the head of the two goats. One of the goats was led off into the wilderness, symbolic of, God's, of all of the Israelites' sins being forgotten out in the wilderness. The second uh, goat was slaughtered and his blood was taken into the Holy, Holy of Holies by the high priest. This was the one time a year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now the priest, if the sacrifice was offered, the priest didn't die in there because he was defiled or the sacrifice somehow was, was uh, defiled, the priest would come back out and announce to the people that their sins had been covered. God's forgiveness had been granted. And what that would do, because it was the Day of Atonement, with that announcement, that would open them up and lead right into that, dear, that year of Sabbath rest. Isn't that a glorious picture? So you come out and you say, your sins are forgiven. So now go on vacation for a year and relax. Tremendous picture, isn't it? Now, Jesus is our high priest. This is significant because this, this, this speaks to not only Israel, but it also speaks to us and the hope that we have. Jesus is our high priest. He is not only our high priest, but he is the sacrifice. It was his blood that he has taken into the Holy of Holies, the book of Hebrews says, into heaven, and is sprinkled on the holy seat, right, for the forgiveness of our sins. The cleansing, not just the covering over, not just the atonement, but the final cleansing of sin. Now, here's the exciting part. As the high priest would come out of the Holy of Holies and announce to the people their forgiveness, and the door would be open now for that Sabbath, our high priest has not yet come back. Our high priest has yet still to come back. Not, just, not to announce forgiveness. That's already been announced to us by the Holy Spirit. But to what? 
to lead us into the Sabbath rest. Now, when did that Sabbath year come? It was the, which year? Seventh year, right? That Sabbath year now represents, symbolically, the seventh millennium. We are in the sixth millennium. The sixth 1,000 year period of toil and labor. And Jesus is coming back. Our high priest is coming back. And when he comes back, he is going to usher us into the Sabbath year rest, the 1,000 year reign, the millennial reign of his kingdom on this earth. Isn't that a glorious picture? Isn't that a glorious picture? When the high priest comes back, we will enter into the millennium. The 1,000 year period of, what's the key word? Rest. But I want you to look at the year of Jubilee. What was the word that characterized Jubilee? Liberty. The year of Jubilee happened every 50 years. In other words, after seven Sabbath years, 49 years, seven Sabbaths in terms of years, the 50th year would be, a, would be the year of Jubilee. What that spoke to of Israel was, as we said, liberty of the slaves, liberty to uh, 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 the inheritance and so forth. But to us and to all generations who trusted in God, after the thousand-year reign, after the Sabbath, the millennium, what does the Lord lead us into? The next year is what? The year of Jubilee, right? The Jubilee represents to us eternity, liberty, Final liberty. Final liberty to the captives. Final liberty for the inheritance. Final liberty for the heavens and the earth. God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And he'll usher us on into eternity. That's jubilee. That is the jubilee to beat all jubilees. <laughs> but we look forward to that, don't we? You see how the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law and all these regulations have application to us? You begin to put them into context and perspective, and you see, wow, God not only was speaking to them, but he has a whole plan for the future, and it fits so perfectly, so marvelously as we study these scriptures. Now, lastly, I just want to quickly run over a couple of things with you with respect to the, all the regulations, and there's so many of them, we aren't going to have time to, I just want to talk to you generally about them. These have to do with all the regulations respecting clean and unclean, whole and deformed, people, animals, food. Uh, you'll read this week about the, the clean and unclean foods, the animals that the Israelites could eat and could not eat. Uh, we read last week about the purification from uh, leprosy or the varieties of skin diseases. Leprosy, remember, is just one all-encompassing term to talk about uh, a multitude of skin diseases the people would experience. Now, the whole idea of this clean-unclean, God doesn't have anything specifically against animals that he labels unclean. He doesn't have anything against people who have uh, a deformed leg or some physical problem like that. That is not the issue. There's a higher principle involved. These are symbolic representations. Anything that is not whole, anything that is not normal, anything that doesn't fall within specific categories that God has prescribed already, represents 
that which is sin or unclean. And Israel is not to have anything to do with that. These are symbolic representations. Understand that. The other, the other side of that is that the clean animals, the whole person and so forth, they were symbolic of holiness and wholeness. They were, these were graphic illustrations to the people. So when it came to offering sacrifice for atonement, for the burnt offering and so forth, the animals that were sacrificed, remember, had to be free from any defect. They had to be whole animals, perfect in every way, as you would inspect the animal. The, the lamb for the Day of Atonement was to be taken into the Israelite home, inspected for four days, evaluated. It passes the inspection. It is suitable to be sacrificed. And so again, this speaks to this issue of, of sin versus wholeness. Sin versus holiness. And the people had these constant reminders in front of them in every area of their life, even in their food. Every area of their life were governed by these things. Now, Israel was to be confronted by the challenge that pollution could come not only from outside, but also from within them. And so you have then the regulations uh, governing bodily discharges. A man or a woman who, who exhibited a bodily discharge was considered unclean, had to go through rites of purification, washings, and offer sacrifices and so forth. You say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. God has made us this way. This is how our bodies function. That's true. But there were constant reminders that sin could pollute from within as well as from without. The discharge itself wasn't sinful, but it was symbolic that there are things inside of man that would pollute him as well as things without him, without, outside of him. Does that make sense to you? Are you following the, the rationale? Let me give you an example. The skin diseases. If you read the account about the skin diseases in the latter part of this week's reading, you notice that, that if, a, if a person had a patch or a boil and it fell into these qualifications, the priests, by the way, were health inspectors also. They weren't doctors, they were health inspectors. They'd come and check you out. But if you had this certain skin disease, you were, you were, you were uh, unclean, you had to be outside the camp, you had to undergo the various other rituals in order to bring you back in and experience healing and so forth, varieties of inspections. But if your skin disease encompassed your entire body from head to toe, you were considered clean. You say, wait a minute, I have this skin disease. Yeah, but if it was over your whole body, emphasis on the word whole, you were, what? Clean. You were looked at as being whole, even though your whole body was diseased. Again, the, the idea of whole versus part. Sin versus wholeness. So when you read through these laws, those are the two main themes that God wants the people to get a hold of. And he wants us to understand them also. There are things within us that pollute, things outside of us that pollute, that we're to press on for holiness, that we are to be whole, holy before him, and not defiled by anything, but understanding that every area of our life, every area of our life is involved. And that's why the laws discuss all these areas. So as the church, we are concerned not so much with the letter of the law as we are with the spirit of the law. This is very very important. As you read through these laws, it's not the letter of the law, 
But what's the spirit of the law? What's the principle behind the law? The um, physical distinctions, which were symbolic, were abolished. The deformities, all those things, those were abolished. We're concerned now with the spirit of the law. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. We worship in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Israel was consumed with the written code. And they continued to be consumed with the written code. They lost sight of the impetus of God's law. And they just became myopic and looked at the written code. The church has had a habit of doing this. And it produces in the church legalistic attitudes. We don't interpret God's law by its spirit. What's the spirit of the law? What's the spirit of the law? Why did God give this? What does it really speak to? What's the principle? How can I apply this to my life? We have a great frustration with our legal court system just in, the, in America today because they're concerned with the letter of the law and they lost sight of the spirit of the law. They're concerned with the letter of the Constitution rather than the spirit of the Constitution. They're concerned with the letter of the Bill of Rights rather than the spirit of the Bill of Rights. And this is a tendency that we have as human beings. This is a tendency that we have in the church to be concerned more with the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. What's God trying to teach us? Is it just we can observe a bunch of rules? No. The letter of the law brings death. The spirit of the law brings life. And if the church is to be full of grace and joy and peace, it will only be full of those things if it understands the spirit of God's law and walks after the spirit. It's the only way. Otherwise, the church will be a dead institution as it has been for centuries. The church historically has been noted for its legalism, for its unacceptance, for its lack of love, for its coldness. How many people do we know, and many of us ourselves, declined coming to church because we felt we'd be judged? We didn't fit in. We weren't good enough. But we come to a church and we meet a fellowship of people who are full of the love of God, people who understand the spirit of the law, people who are seeking to live the spirit of the law those people will be moved with compassion towards new people who come in and will say, I understand. Come on in, worship God, learn to trust him, he'll change your life. That's what it's all about. God wanted to heal Israel. He wanted them to be a light. He wants us to be a light too. But we've got to understand the principle and the spirit of God's law. Amen? Let's pray. Fathers, we pray, prepare for communion this morning. Lord, we ask that you would minister these things to us. Father, there may be many, many people here this morning who, though Christians, as we've talked about being priests and not being defiled, Lord, there are probably people here this morning who feel unworthy to come to your table. Lord God, we're all unworthy. You want us to come to your table. You want us to eat this meal. The same meal, the same parallel meal that the priests in the Old Testament would eat.
the things of the tabernacle. If you're sitting there this morning and you are feeling disqualified or unworthy, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the communion meal, he says, don't come to the Lord's table unworthily. That's an adverb. And it describes an action. It doesn't describe a state. All of us are unworthy. All of us don't deserve based on our own efforts. But we can come because there's been a sacrifice offered once for all. Once for all men, once for all time, once for all sin. What the Apostle Paul is talking about is when we come to the communion table, not to come in a manner that would exhibit a casual, lighthearted, flippant, unbelieving attitude. That's what he means when he says, don't come unworthily. Don't receive the bread and the juice in an unworthy manner. But come with a sense of, of awe. Come with a sense of wonder. Come with a sense of expectation. With great hope. Come with thanksgiving. Come with a, a sense that God will strengthen, encourage you, bless your life as you receive the elements. The elements are bread and juice. But miraculously, they just don't turn into the body and blood of Christ, but they are agents through which Jesus nourishes us with his life. There's, a, there's an incredible distinction, but it's a mystery. This is not just a symbolic act that we do. It's much more. It's a testimony of our faith and our hope, our trust, and our need of Christ every day. So I want you to contemplate these things, and as the ushers come and serve us communion, hold on to the elements, and I'll come back in just a few moments, and I'd like very much to lead you in communion together. You could just talk to Jesus face to face one time. If you could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, be healed. Or if you could ask him and, and he would just sit right there with you on the couch or in the same room with you and he would reach his hand and just touch you and, and make you well, comfort you in your grief. It can happen this morning. The Bible says where two or more are gathered in his name, he's in our presence. But we have the added feature of having the cracker and the juice, which again are not just only symbolic and representative of his physical presence, but also are the very agents of his power and grace to us. Again, it comes to faith, doesn't it? But here we have some tangible elements, contact points, if you will, it's not that we just don't have anything in our hands. It's not that we have nothing to look at or, or touch or see. But we have the body and the blood of Jesus, which was given for us and for the forgiveness of our sins, for the relieving of our grief and distress, and for the healing of our lives. So each one of us can sit there and each one of us can look at the elements and say, Jesus, thank you. Comfort me. Heal me. Forgive me.
nourish me, strengthen me. And each one of us have a drama going on in our life, all so similar and yet so different. Each one of us have problems and issues and struggles and fears, anxieties. But Jesus is here this morning to minister to those needs, to comfort, to bring strength, encouragement, hope, joy, peace. You can treat the meal as one, in one of two ways. You can treat it indifferently and not benefit by it. Paul said to those people in Corinth who, who treated the meal such, in such a manner, he says, this is why so many of you are, are still sick. This is why so many of you are still weak. And some of you have died prematurely because you've not realized what God wants to bless you and how he wants to bless you through the communion meal. And so if you would come in a manner with expectation, with joy, with thanksgiving, hopefully, by faith, Present your request to God and let him minister to you as we receive these elements. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my body. Take and eat. Jesus, we receive your life. You're renewing, strengthening life right now. In the face of that which opposes us, you strengthen us. Encourage our hearts, renew our hope. We receive that right now. He passed the cup amongst the disciples and they said, this is the cup of the new covenant. There's a new way, a new avenue now. The new covenant in my blood, free access to the throne free access to God's grace, healing. He said, when you drink this cup, do it often. And when you do it, remember me. Jesus, we remember you and we give you thanks right now. We hold this cup up. And Lord, we toast you. We toast you. Blessed be your name. Heal your people, Lord. Bind up their wounds. Minister to their hurts, O oh God. Strengthen the church, Lord, by your body, by your blood. Thank you, Lord. Has the Lord ministered to you this morning? He's a faithful God.